Welcome to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers about medical breakthroughs with the power to improve lives everywhere. Today, how can clinicians monitor and understand neurodegenerative diseases case by case with the aid of technology? To develop precision medicine, which is the overarching goal, we really need numbers in the order of 100,000 to a million to really go after uh, relatively uncommon variants and, and start to fully understand the genomic architecture of the disease. In the last of this three-part series on neurodegenerative diseases, Siemens Healthineers Director of Technology and Innovation, Lance Ladig, talks with Doigu Tosan, Andy Saikin, and Claire McKay. Hello, I'm Lance Laddick. So far in our series, we've talked about the various means we have to help us understand neurodegenerative diseases more generally. We have many different types of information at our disposal, from blood samples to imaging scans and psychological tests. But despite such a wealth of data, it's difficult to predict at what rate an individual patient's cognitive faculties will decline. Every individual might have their own little subtle differences in their disease progression. This is what we call a heterogeneity in the disease. This is Doigu Tosen, Associate Professor at the University of California, San Francisco. We first met Doigu in the second episode of this series. There's so much heterogeneity between individuals. There's lots of interaction happening with the body and the brain. And that interaction is different from one individual to another individual. Heterogeneity refers to the many variations between patients who suffer from the same condition. So it's even more important to understand how each individual factor contributes to the specific way a disease presents in different patients. We learned in the last two episodes that certain proteins in the brain contribute to cognitive decline, and that these proteins affect the development of particular neurodegenerative diseases. But we still don't know for sure if reducing these types of proteins will also help to reduce cognitive decline significantly. It's hard for us to predict the development of a disease like Alzheimer's accurately. This could be due to many different reasons. One important research focus is the considerable heterogeneity of patients. That's probably like a billion dollar question still out there. We're still trying to understand what triggers even the amyloid accumulation because you can have different individuals presenting with similar backgrounds but quite different pathological presentation in their brains. This variability from one individual to another individual points back to their chronic or other comorbid chronic diseases as well as their lifelong behaviors. Comorbidity means the presence of two or more diseases in a single patient. Such comorbidities might be diabetes or stroke. And these comorbidities can help us identify and explain variations between patients, variations that might present in multiple ways. These are multi-system diseases, and it's not just how your brain tissue is changing. It's also important to understand the reflection of those changes in other domains. There's lots of things you can learn one example is looking at speech 
voice and the way they're speaking, the way they're pausing or the word selections that they're making. And we're analyzing that information to detect if they have mild cognitive impairment or if do they have dementia. And some of the early data actually suggests such speech-related biomarkers still could be associated with amyloid accumulation in their brain as well. Can AI help us better understand these relationships between different types of medical information? And can it help us bring care more quickly to the right patients at the right time? Might AI even be able to spot things that the human eye cannot? Let's hear from Tobias Kober, Director of Siemens Healthineers Innovation Hub in Switzerland. Earlier, Tobias talked to us about the impact of an AI tool on monitoring scanned images for neurodegenerative disease. Those algorithms can be much more sensitive than the human eye. There might be, for example, an MS case where you have very small lesions. And when you think about a radiologist looking at these images after a shift of 12 hours, he or she might just not see some of them, which is significant for the diagnosis in the end. So AI and machine learning based algorithms, they have the power of just performing in a very robust way, very consistently, these tedious tasks which are overburdening the radiologists. This work is part of the project MS Paths. In this project, several centers for multiple sclerosis are collecting and standardizing data with advanced technology. We uh, designed a software together with the colleagues from Biogen, which looks specifically at new and growing lesions. And this is important because it really guides the treatment decision. There's this concept which came up in the last 10 years that you don't want to see any activity of MS, otherwise you change the treatment. One lesion can be actually decisive of making that treatment change or not. MS is a complex disease, so MS paths, they try to standardize many of the biomarkers they acquire for MS patients. For example, they have developed in tablet-based self-evaluations so the, a lot of parameters which measure your performance, your bodily performance or gait, cognition, reaction time and these things, they are standardized using this tablet and they also standardize the imaging. Now I think they might approach 30,000 patients and that puts you on a whole different level. For me as an imaging researcher, this is actually really, really exciting. We now have so many ways to access and acquire data about a patient. And yet the sheer amount of data available to us can also become a real hurdle in the diagnostic process. We're doubling the size of the data sets year after year. We met Professor Andy Sakin back in the first episode of this series. I'm the Raymond C. Beeler Professor of Radiology and Imaging Sciences at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis. What's Andy's view on the future of AI in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases? I think that we're going to have unprecedented biological data and also clinical information from electronic health records. And imaging keeps progressing in terms of our ability to measure various proteins and other analytes at a molecular level in the brain in a living person. It's certainly the era of the data scientist because we need help putting all of that information together. If you just take the correlation of everything with everything, you get essentially the world's biggest, most dense hairball. And what we need are smart strategies to cut through that hairball and start to make sense of all of the biological relationships and find things that are not just interesting in a, a billion correlations, 
but we need to find medically actionable signals in that massive data set. So that's the great challenge. And that's where I think artificial intelligence can enter the network biology picture and start to help us find the 20 needles in the 20 uh, haystacks, so to speak. To speed up the way we can sift through those 20 haystacks, some researchers are using what we call unsupervised learning models on their data. Unsupervised learning models pick out patterns and in information that haven't yet been tagged by a clinician. These models can sift through the data entirely by themselves. One of the advantages of artificial intelligence is being able to identify new patterns from the data. We've been developing models to predict presence of AD pathology in individuals. And the other key models we've been working on are detecting non-Alzheimer disease-related pathologies in individuals that are diagnosed with Alzheimer disease, because those comorbid pathologies are also important to understand. And we want to use data coming from individuals where we have a clear proof of presence of pathologies we are interested in. The other direction we've been pursuing with others is putting together really, really large data sets with diverse image quality, as well as with diverse cohort properties and pursue more of a unsupervised approach to discover new patterns or new information about the population as as well as about the cohort. It definitely comes with some challenges, but it has the advantage of being more generalizable and more inclusive from a diversity perspective. Before we set up an algorithm to analyze the data, we need to ensure that we have the right samples. This makes acquiring a diverse data set essential. It's brilliant that there are so many new tools being developed all the time using the technology that so many of us carry around in our pockets. This is Claire Mackay. We met Claire in episode one. I'm the professor of imaging neuroscience at the University of Oxford. The possibilities are are really almost endless, but it remains the case that collecting high quality evidence And in medical research, that means randomized clinical trials. Those are hard to design and take time. So one of the things that we think we're able to do with our brain health clinic is access a much more representative cohort because we've aligned our research with the clinical service. So that means that the data set that we are accumulating is actually much more representative of the real world memory clinic population than a research cohort would typically be. We ask patients if they are happy for us to use the data that's being collected for research as number one. Number two is, are they happy to do additional assessments while they're there? And number three is, are they happy to be contacted about future studies and trials? And bearing in mind that the national target for involvement of dementia patients in research is 10%, we get consent rates of above 90, above 80, and above 70% respectively for those three categories that's of research quality against which we can be developing our new biomarkers. These measures help Claire and her team to get more data. But how diverse are these data? Unfortunately, the population that is served by the memory clinic that I work with is not terribly diverse. But my colleagues who are setting up the same sorts of infrastructure around the country 
have much better access to diverse populations and, and are really able to major on that. And so my colleagues in Manchester, for example, and Sheffield and other big cities have much greater access to diverse populations. But then there's another sort of baked in problem, which is there isn't necessarily the same cultural expectation of visiting doctors when you have particular symptoms. So you might find that there are particular pockets of in, in our diverse societies where there's much less likelihood that somebody will even visit a doctor with symptoms. And so that's a, that's a problem that needs solving at a different level, really. But in terms of making sure that people who are referred by their doctors into specialist services are then given equal opportunity to contribute to this sorts of research, well, we can definitely take care of that bit. Sharing such diverse data amongst organizations and institutions will give us the fuller picture, not only of how disease progresses statistically in the average person, but also of how disease progresses in each individual. When we look at more individuals, we can begin to understand the anomalies, the tiny differences, the minuscule changes that might go undetected or overlooked as outliers in smaller data sets. This is why it's so important not only for clinical teams to talk together, but also that national and even international networks get into the practice of sharing imaging and lab data. To develop precision medicine, which is the overarching goal, we really need numbers in the order of 100,000 to a million to really go after uh, relatively uncommon variants and start to fully understand the genomic architecture of the disease. There are very few developments in the field, I think more important than open science and data sharing. Very proud that the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, which I've been part of uh, since the beginning, has been at the forefront of open science and data sharing. So we make all of the data from cognitive testing, clinical exams, blood CSF, and multimodal brain imaging data available to the scientific community without any embargo. That really is another transformational development. Models need to be trained on data, and it's so important that these models have access to as large a data set as possible, because training our artificial intelligence on data sets that are too small could be extremely detrimental. We need to be very careful when we're interpreting and when we are field testing some of these models in real life. Models will learn whatever you tell the model to learn. That is the limitation. It's very important to know the limitations of your data. Andy Sakin is part of KBASE, the Korean brain aging study for the early diagnosis and prediction of Alzheimer's disease. This group aims to fill the gaps in the currently available data sets with more diverse patient information. This is a collaboration with a group at Seoul National University in Korea. It's a collaboration between Indiana University, Seoul National University, and several other groups around the country. The major purpose is to expand the genetic studies in Alzheimer's disease to include other populations. So most of the work to date has been in the white European ancestry population. That's been informative, but that's only one portion of the global population and limits our ability to understand the genetic variation in Alzheimer's disease and other related disorders. Our Korean colleagues have implemented very similar measures with uh, cognition, clinical examinations, blood genetic biomarkers, MRI, and positron emission tomography in a population in Korea. So it's an opportunity to really compare and contrast the patterns that we see 
here in the U.S. with those of our Asian colleagues and their cohort. So it's incredibly important to widen the global reach of our data sets, just as the groups involved with KBase have done. But how do researchers deploy AI algorithms that can analyze the gathered data? And what impact does this have on clinical trials? One of the collaborations we're doing with clinical trials, building artificial intelligence algorithms, which looks at the current stage of their brain health using neuroimaging biomarkers in terms of the level of amyloid protein they have in their brain, the level of tau protein they have in their brain, and also how much brain tissue they have, how functional their brain tissue. Combining all that information, we can predict their clinical progression for next two years or next five years. If we assign the right individuals to the right treatment, that increases the design power of a clinical trial and that accelerates the cycle of trial for, for a given treatment. AI algorithms can help us better understand where patients are on the disease pathway. This can make a huge difference to how patients respond to treatment. Is the patient at a stage where they can benefit from these treatments? Those are questions we are aiming with some, some of our artificial intelligence modeling, like staging the patients properly in this dynamic progression of the disease and assigning them to the right treatment. These pharmaceutical treatments, they do target a particular biology. If you don't have that particular biological change, they're not going to do anything. So it's important to identify who has the right biology for that treatment. And at the same time, it's important to identify in this dynamic progression of the disease where the patient is and is that stage of the disease the right time for this treatment. Approaches like these would reduce the number of patients receiving unnecessary treatment and would allow us to select drugs that might be more effective at earlier stages of the disease. Of course, we have to make sure that we take equal care of patients, regardless of the stage of their condition. As we concentrate so much of our effort on early detection and early intervention, it is really important to be able to do all we can for people in later stages of disease. There are symptomatic treatments. By the time an individual has a lot of decline, it's very hard to put the pieces back together, if you will. Although symptomatic treatments can be very helpful depending on the nature of an individual's uh, symptom profile. And there are many people uh, working on symptomatic treatments for later stage disease, potentially for preventing further decline. But ultimately, the answer is going to come from early intervention probably during the preclinical stages of disease when there's underlying changes in the brain pathophysiologically but not yet significant symptoms or early prodrome when there are mild symptoms. It's not enough to develop new technologies. We have to make sure that the specialists facing these new datasets are trained to interpret them correctly. With each patient, radiologists have to work through a lot of information and make assumptions about each case. Usually, they're under immense time pressure to get this demanding task right. It's really hard for radiologists to decide what are the technical characteristics I have to look for, what is the performance I need to enforce on these algorithms that they are helpful to me. You have to prove that you make things better for them. We try to focus on what we call PAX-ready solutions. 
So VDWitch don't need any interaction for the radiologists. The software has to be transparent, especially at the beginning when a radiologist or any clinician is using a tool. It's not enough to actually just give them an, a number. They have to be able to trust the reliability of that number. Tobias Kober's team published guidelines to help clinicians through this process, which we will link to in the show notes. And could even the machines we use to image the brain show variation? You can take the picture of the same scene using two different phones or two different cameras. Depending on, on the quality of your camera, the impression of, of that scene in, in your photo will look different, even though it's the same scene you're taking the picture of. And each pixel has an information about the structure and the function of the brain. Sometimes many of these information could be redundant, but there are complementary information when we look at different imaging modalities or different biomarkers. Also, there are unique information that comes from diverse biomarkers. It's a very integrated system. The functional changes versus structural changes versus metabolic changes. So it's very important to capture all that information at once for magnetic resonance imaging. And we have various different vendors and each vendor has a different specification of, of their machine. If we collect the blood from the same individual twice and look at the protein profiles using two different machines, it's potentially possible to get certain variability on those measurements. One thing we often worry in artificial intelligence is model learning the biomarker collection differences rather than learning the actual biomarker differences due to the disease. And it's a very challenging problem. Neurodegenerative diseases pose some of the most pressing problems for modern medicine. In this series, we've looked at ways to address this immense challenge specifically through technology the key roles of imaging and lab testing in diagnosing and monitoring patients, as well as selecting care pathways for them. Collecting new forms of data from wearables and smart devices to supplement the information we have, which gives us a clearer picture of disease progression. Using a variety of biomarkers to find the signs of disease as early as we can, and integrating the data sets we have with AI algorithms to help clinicians make better decisions faster. By doing all this, we have a real chance to improve care for everyone. Nevertheless, my guests have all pointed to the balancing act we're all currently facing between the vast possibilities of these promising technologies on the one hand and the pathways necessary to access and assess them on the other. We'll be keeping a close eye on the groundbreaking research and projects that my guests are currently working on. We hope that these will establish sustainable and scalable strategies for treating a global population in the fight against neurodegenerative diseases. You've been listening to Healthcare Perspectives, a podcast by Siemens Healthineers. We pioneer breakthroughs in healthcare for everyone, everywhere. Subscribe to us and always get the latest episode in your podcast feed or visit siemens-healthineers.com slash podcast for more. The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Health and Years.